which um, starts at uh, three ribosomes in the cytosol. And you see that as soon as the uh, growing uh, polypeptide chain exits the ribosome, it presents an ER signal. As you may remember, and that's not on the slide here, this ER signal is then recognized by this signal recognition particle, and that binds to the receptor on the membrane of the endoplasmatic reticulum. And then whilst protein synthesis is still ongoing, the protein gets translocated through this translocon pore uh, into the lumen of the ER, or if it's an integral membrane protein, we talked about the different types right, of transmembrane proteins, it gets stuck in the ER membrane. <clears throat> and these proteins then get modified in the ER lumen. We talked about a couple of different types uh, of modifications, such as glycosylations, um, protein disulfide bonds. And after they've been modified, these proteins move on through the Golgi complex and are then transported either to the plasma membrane. And if they are luminal proteins, they then get secreted. For example, the extracellular matrix proteins. Um, if they're integral membrane proteins, they basically get transported to the plasma membrane where they conserve their function. And similarly, the proteins that get targeted to the lysosomal membrane or to the lumen of the lysosome also go through the secretory pathway. And of course, the proteins that actually reside in the ER or in the Golgi also go through this pathway. Now, today we're going to cover um, some of the other proteins which um, are also synthesized at free ribosomes. But then they're either fully synthesized and become cytosolic proteins, or as you can see here on the very right side, they contain a particular targeting sequences targeting sequence, which then uh, basically helps them translocate to the mitochondria, to the chloroplasts, the peroxisomes, or through the nuclear pores into the nucleus. And I will kind of limit the discussion for today to the targeting mechanisms that play a role for the targeting of mitochondrial proteins and the nuclear proteins. There's a lot more about that in the book, but Whatever is covered today is going to be part of the exam. Whatever I don't discuss, you don't need to learn it for the exam. All right, so mitochondria, you remember, they have a double membrane, um, an outer and an inner membrane. And then between the membranes, we have the so-called intermembrane space. And you can see how the inner membrane here folds into what is called cristae. As you can imagine, that largely increases the surface area that this membrane has that's facing uh, the matrix, the lumen of the mitochondria. Okay. You can also recognize these little particles here. And these are actually the uh, proteins that synthesize ATP. We'll talk about those a little bit later uh, during the lecture. Now, you may also remember that mitochondria have their own DNA. But it's actually just a small amount of DNA, which does not, is not sufficient to encode for all the proteins that you would find in the mitochondria. So that's why the majority of proteins, uh, of mitochondrial proteins, is actually encoded by nuclear, uh, uh, in the nucleus. And so these mRNAs will be translated in the cytosol. And what happens is these mRNAs are then held by these chaperonins, which are called HSC70. So what these chaperonins do, they bind to um, 
basically stretches of this polypeptide sequence and keep the protein unfolded. Because it would be very difficult to funnel a completely folded protein through these tiny pores in the mitochondria. Now I also want to point out that these chaperonins, in order to be active, hydrolyze ATP. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Yes. So, basically, um, that, HS, that HSC70 uh, protein binds to the new protein and keeps it Yes. So essentially, you can see how this process becomes important here if you compare this process to the translocation that proteins undergo into the ER, right? There the ribosome just synthesizes the very first stretch of the polypeptide, and then you have this N-terminal signal sequence sticking out of the ribosome. So their folding is not a problem because at the point when this little polypeptide sticks out, as you remember, translation is actually arrested until the ribosome binds to the ER membrane, and then it continues. Now in the case of the mitochondrial proteins, and the nuclear proteins and all those proteins that were shown here on the right side of the slide, these get first completely synthesized. So there's a major difference here between this pathway and the secretory pathway, all right? They get fully synthesized and the cytosolic proteins, they fold up, but the ones that get transported to the mitochondria and the chloroplasts, they actually are held <coughs> in an unfolded configuration of these chaperone proteins. And then they can be translocated through the pore. So we also learned uh, in a previous lecture that these uh, proteins of the cell basically adds an address label to these different types of proteins that are targeted to different organelles. And here you can see a typical uh, mitochondrial targeting sequence. I um, want to point out that it is an N-terminal stretch of amino acids, about 20 to 50 amino acids. And you can see that there's an alternating pattern of hydrophobic or slightly polar amino acids here with polar, uh, sorry, basic residues or positively charged residues, right? Arginine has a positive charge, lysine has a positive charge. Now what happens is that this sequence at the end terminus can adopt a certain secondary structure. You remember what secondary structures are? Alpha helices, beta sheet, or beta strand, and turns, right? So this particular sequence can adopt an alpha helical fold. And that's shown on this slide here. It's pretty much the same sequence, but now we have it color-coded. You see that all the basic residues here, which have a positive charge, like arginine and lysine, are colored in red, and then in between you have the hydrophobic or polar residues. Now, if such a sequence adopts an alpha helical fold, it will look more or less like this. Now, this is called an amphipathic helix. Does anyone remember what amphipathic stands for? Just never You raised your head. <laughs> okay. Yes? Yeah. So it's it's basically a molecule that has both. A hydrophilic, hydrophilic portion and a hydrophobic portion. Okay? As you all know, polar is sort of in between, but charged residues are clearly, uh, 
clearly hydrophilic. <laughs> and uh, then we have these small amino acids like isoleucine, leucine, um, and those are usually um, more hydrophobic amino acids. And you see that basically, in this case, it is one side of the helix that carries all the positive charges here, right? So it's different than what you recall about the phospholipids. There you actually had like the head groups, which were polar, and then the fatty acid chains, which are hydrophobic, right? Here it's actually the same molecule, but because you fold it up into the structure, you now have an amphipathic helix with which, where one side is um, pretty much uh, positively charged, and the other side is either hydrophobic um, or polar. So this is a classical mitochondrial targeting sequence. That's what it looks like. And again, it's, it's located at the end terminus, just like the ER signal sequence. Does anyone remember what the ER signal sequence looks like? Yeah? The ER signal sequence, um, wasn't that mostly, it was mostly made up of negatively charged power? Yeah, positively charged. Not quite, not quite. Yes? Um, it's a stretch of hydrophobic amino acids, but it's perceived by, I think, one positively charged amino acid. Yes. So, so that's true. So what the, the two here have in common, they both are located at the end terminus. But in the case of the ER signal sequence, you basically have one positive charged, positively charged amino acid followed by a long stretch of uh, hydrophobic residue. So keep that in mind. Um, but you, can, you will see on the next slide, there are some similarities between the targeting of the ER proteins and the mitochondrial proteins. But the targeting sequence here is different in a way that we have this alternating pattern of hydrophobic polar residues and then the positively charged residues. So how does this work? Um, so we talked already about the first part here. We have this, uh, we could say, mitochondrial precursor protein. Um, and it's held in, in shape or in an unfolded state by these chaperonins called cytosolic HCC70. You see how it has these N-terminal matrix targeting sequence here. And by the way, we're only going to discuss the proteins getting targeted to the matrix. In the book, you will also find all the more complicated mechanisms about how these proteins would get targeted to the outer membrane, the intermembrane space, and the inner membrane. We're not going to cover that. Okay? But I just want you to know that things can be more complicated, and there are lots of other mechanisms that are needed to target these mitochondrial proteins to the uh, basically different subcellular compartments here in the mitochondria. So the matrix uh, mitochondrial proteins have this targeting sequence. They uh, then align with an import receptor. You can see there's no signal recognition particle involved, right? In contrast to the ER targeting mechanism. And it then binds to this import receptor and called TOM20, TOM22, all right? So you see we have here these TOMs and we have these TIMs. And TOM and TIM basically stands for translocon of outer membrane and translocon of inner membrane. That's how they got their name. So what happens is that this import receptor now transfers uh, the matrix targeting sequence into this what's called TOM40 or general import pore, okay? And now the protein can translocate through this outer pore and then through another pore in the inner membrane. Now, what you can see here is that there's 
in the matrix, there's a, a matrix version of HSC 70. And again, this is a very similar chaperonin, which also uses the energy of ATP hydrolysis. And what it does, it basically acts like a ratchet or a molecular motor that helps to pull in this polypeptide sequence through these two proteins, and through these two pores into the lumen of the mitochondria. And then similar to what's happening in the ER lumen, yes? Well, uh, yes and no. So you basically have both combined in this import receptor here. So there's, um, there's mechanisms that can recognize the targeting sequence, but we're not going to discuss them here. But otherwise, things get you know, more complicated. But essentially, there is a recognition mechanism right here at the uh, import uh, receptor. But there's no such signal recognition particle as uh, you, know, you would find it in the targeting of the ER molecules. Uh, what they do recognize is this particular type of amphipathic helix. And uh, so you can imagine that you have, let's say, positively charged on the helix here. And that particular fold would then fit perfectly into uh, the import receptor. So that might constitute a mechanism. But I really don't want to go into the details here. There's a lot that we have to cover today in addition to that. Um, but there's a, this is the general process, right? So again, you have this unfolded precursor that arrives here, binds to the receptor, then it gets transferred into the translocon and translocates through these two pores. And basically, we have this molecular motor here, matrix HSC70, that pulls it into the matrix. And then, just like in ER, we have a protease that cleaves off the targeting sequence. This case is called a matrix-specific protease. Yes? Does the TOM transfer the protein, the bipeptide, to the general no, that's exactly what's happening. Yeah, the general, uh, the import receptor basically transfers the targeting sequence to the pore. Okay, um, so then once you basically process this precursor protein by cleaving off the targeting sequence, it can now fold in its final uh, three-dimensional structure and be an active protein. All right, and I just briefly want to discuss again what are the different sources of energy that are required for this process? And basically, there are three types. Uh, you saw that cytosolic HEC70 binds to this precursor, holds it in, in, in an unfolded state, and it does so at the expenditure of ATP. It burns ATP to hold, hold it uh, in an unfolded state. And then in the matrix, we have HEC70, which is anchored to the inner face of the membrane. That's just a detail. And it may act, what people think is that it acts as a molecular motor, as I said, like a ratchet that pulls the precursor through the two pores of the outer and the inner membrane into the matrix. Both of them burn ATP. Okay. And the third source of energy is the electrochemical potential. Now, that may sound strange, but essentially, um, a lot of processes, and you will see that later in the lecture, in a cell are driven by differences or ion gradients uh, that exist across membranes. Okay? Because energy can be stored in these concentration gradients as an electrochemical potential. Because usually if you separate an ion 
by a lipophilic membrane, right? You have, let's say, high sodium on one side, low sodium on the other side. That by itself uh, separates um, concentrations, so to say, or the ions. So we have a concentration gradient, and it also separates charges. So we have an electrical, <coughs> and combined, that would constitute an electrochemical potential. So I'll show you in a second what that looks like. So that's actually summarized here. So again, we have cytosolic HSC70, which burns ATP to hold it in unfolded state. Matrix HSC70 here, which also hydrolyzes ATP to pull in the protein into the matrix. And then we have this huge electrochemical potential across the inner membrane, inner mitochondrial membrane. And you may remember from previous lectures that basically there's a proton gradient generated across the inner membrane during oxidative phosphorylation. Right? That's one of the major functions of the mitochondria, to generate ATP as an energy source. And so you can see that because of this proton gradient, basically have a high concentration of protons in the inter intermembrane space, and then essentially less protons, or you could say negatively charged uh, environment in the matrix. So how would that help with transport? Well, if you think of the targeting sequence, the targeting sequence has these basic, basic residues, right? Positively charged residues. So this thought that you could think about in this way that you mainly have negatively charged uh, uh, ions inside the cell, and that then attracts this positively charged targeting sequence. So this thought that this electrochemical potential across the inner membrane helps to pull in this uh, polypeptide chain through these two pores. Okay, I'm going to switch gears and talk a little bit about the trafficking mechanisms that exist for the nucleus. Um, so just like the mitochondria, the nuclear membrane, you all remember the nuclear envelope is a, is a double membrane. So we need specific mechanisms here to move proteins and other macromolecules across this nuclear membrane. And as you all remember, the nuclear envelope has these gigantic protein complexes. That's the nuclear pore complex. And uh, that basically allows the proteins to travel uh, through the nuclear membrane. Now these protein pores are, uh, consist of so-called nucleoporins. These are about 30 different types of proteins. We call them altogether nucleoporins. And they constitute this uh, enormous protein complex, which is about 16 times larger than the ribosome. So it's a very big protein complex. And as you all know, we can actually see it very well in the electron microscope. Now, major difference to all the targeting mechanisms that we've discussed before. These nuclear proteins are imported into the nucleus in a folded state. Okay. Right? Do you remember the ER proteins are basically translocated into the lumen whilst they're still being synthesized? Now, we just covered the mitochondrial proteins, which are kept in an unfolded state. Contrast the nuclear proteins first fold into their three-dimensional structure, and then they get imported through the pores. 
So here's again a picture or two pictures of the uh, nuclear core complex um, visualized by scanning electron microscopy that gives you these nice three-dimensional pictures. Um, on the left side you can see uh, the cytosolic view essentially, so from outside the nucleus onto the nuclear membrane. And you see how these nuclear pore complexes exhibit this octagonal shape, and you've seen these images before. Um, and these are essentially uh, part of the nuclear porins that, that form this octagonal uh, structure here. And then on the other side, if you look from the inside of the nucleus onto the pore complex, uh, you see these um, so-called basket filaments, and they end in this terminal ring here. All right. So this is again shown in this cartoon. Again, you have uh, basically nucleoporins that stick out of the, um, the pore complex facing the cytoplasm, which you saw in the picture on the right before. And then you have these nuclear basket filaments here that end in a terminal ring. Now, out of all these nucleoporins, I want you to remember that we have a specific type of nucleoporins that line really the core of the nuclear pore complex. And these are the so-called FG nucleoporins. Okay. So what these FG nucleoporins, uh, why are they called FG nucleoporins? Because they basically have uh, repetitive sequences that are rich in the amino acids phenylalanine, so F, and glycine. Right? Those are the single letter codes for these two amino acids. You will see that they play an important role because they're thought to act like a molecular sieve. So what does that mean? It means that small molecules essentially can freely pass through the nuclear pore. But larger molecules need to be, you can imagine, they fold in their three-dimensional state. They just don't fit through the pore. And essentially, they will have a nuclear signal sequence that can, well, it's, it's more complicated than that. But essentially, there are mechanisms in place where the cargo that goes through the complex needs to interact with these FG nucleoporins. So we'll talk about that now in detail. So that's again summarized here. So basically both large and small molecules can move through the nuclear pore, but there's a difference. Essentially ions, which are of course very small molecules, metabolize and then small proteins, which are smaller than 40 kilodaltons. They can simply diffuse through the pore. There's no active mechanism involved. In contrast, we have then large proteins and also the, the ribonucleoprotein complexes, which are larger than 40 kilodaltons, and they require an active mechanism. And what they do is they basically ride piggyback uh, with small transporter proteins, which can interact with these FG nucleoporins. Okay? And that's how they get translocated through the nucleopore. And that's again shown on this, no, it's not. <laughs> That's first slide here shows you what these nuclear localization signals look like. Um, essentially, they're uh, a stretch, and we talked about that in previous lectures, of five to seven basic amino acids. So it could look like this, lysine, 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 arginine, lysine. Okay, they're all basic. Now, major difference here, again, just to refresh your memory, because we talked about that in a previous lecture, in contrast to the ER signals, and the mitochondrial signals, which are all N-terminal, the nucleus localization signals can be located anywhere uh, inside the, in, in the amino acid sequence. Okay? 
Um, there are other nuclear localization signals, but I just want to keep uh, you to keep in mind that this is the most common, so to say, consensus sequence. That you have five to seven basic sequence, uh, basic residues in a stretch that can be located anywhere in the amino acid sequence. All right. So um, now this NLS is very important because researchers have actually found that this nuclear localization signal is really sufficient to target even a cytoplasmic protein to the nucleus. And that's shown here. It's a very simple experiment. So on the left side, you basically have a, a cell uh, that expresses a cytoplasmic protein you're all familiar with, pyruvate kinase. Anyone remembers where that enzyme plays a role? Glycolysis. Yeah, very good, glycolysis, okay. Um, but it's just an example here. It's an example for a, a glycolytic enzyme because glycolysis actually occurs in the cytoplasm and that's why we find this protein in the cytoplasm. Okay. And how, have we, how did we visualize the protein? Well, we used a specific antibody to do immunolabeling studies here. So whatever is green here shows the distribution of this pyruvate kinase protein uh, in this cell. Now, in the experiment on the right side, you see that uh, scientists now fused a nuclear localization signal by genetic engineering to um, the uh, uh, to pyruvate kinase, and big surprise, it localized to the nucleus. So, what's the conclusion? Conclusion is that the nuclear localization signal is sufficient to target um, uh, proteins to the nucleus. All right, how does it work? Well, there are multiple players that are important in this process. Um, first, we have RAN, which is a G protein. You probably learned a lot about these G proteins. These are molecular switches that can cycle between a GDP and a GTP bound form. As you all remember, GTP bound form, that's the high energy uh, configuration of the molecule, all right? So RAN is a G protein. Then we have two other molecules called important alpha and important beta. And these importants form a heterodimeric nuclear import receptor. You'll see exactly on the next slide how all this plays together. Now, importantly, the alpha subunit in this import receptor will bind to the basic nuclear localization signal. And then the beta subunit, on the other hand, this is the portion which will specifically interact with these FG nuclear pores at the very core of the nuclear pore complex. All right? So together, these proteins allow the translocation of these large proteins through a nuclear pore. So here's how it works. Now, since we want to shuttle proteins from the cytosol into the nucleoplasm, the whole process starts, of course, in the cytosol. <coughs> All right, let me quickly explain the different players here. On the very right side, you see basically a cargo protein in brown with a nuclear localization signal. Here you have important in red. Remember, it's a heterodimeric protein. It has an alpha and a beta subunit. And then we have RAN-GTP or RAN-GDP. Right? can have both conformations. So in the cytoplasm, the important, actually the alpha subunit of the important, will recognize the nuclear localization signal. Okay, so that's mediated by the alpha subunit. And then they form a cargo complex that can translocate through the nucleus by using the interactions between the beta subunit of the important receptor with these FG repeats here. 
Okay, these are the FG nuclear points here, this little thing in orange. So then, once the complex arrives inside the uh, nucleoplasm, um, you will have RAN GTP, which is loaded up with GTP here, and that binds to um, the important receptor, which then leads to dissociation, which induces a conformational change, and that leads to dissociation of the uh, cargo. Okay? And now RAN GTP bind to important is recycled back through the nucleopore complex. And as you can see here, uh, GTP hydrolysis occurs, which brings uh, RAN GTP back to the uh, GDP, GDP bound state and can basically undergo another cycle. Okay, and the whole complex here falls apart, so we have all the ingredients ready to undergo another cycle of transport. And I want to point out, and you probably learned about these proteins in other lectures, um, that we have these guanine nucleotide exchange factors, the GEFs, and the GTPase accelerating factors, and they can largely influence the conformation of these uh, G proteins and basically promote uh, either loading them up with GTP or the hydrolysis of GTP. So these can, in a major way, influence these molecular switches. The take-home message here is we have these important receptors. They have an alpha and a beta subunit. Um, and we have another player, which is the small G protein, RAN, uh, GDP or GDP. Um, the whole process, of course, requires the energy that comes from the hydrolysis of GDP. Okay, so interestingly, some proteins also have to be exported from the nucleus, and it's a very similar mechanism. However, it is also a RAN-dependent uh, export mechanism. So both processes are RAN-dependent. However, in this case, the, there's a nuclear export signal, which is rich in leucines, okay? So the amino acid leucine. So how does that work? So here, of course, since we want to export the proteins, everything starts in the nucleoplasm. You should focus on the lower part of the slide right here. So here we have a cargo protein. Of course, the cargo protein now has a nuclear export signal. And it forms a complex with a protein that is now called exported. It's really a different type of protein, but somewhat related to importance. Um, you see how they form a ternary uh, um, a complex here between the cargo protein, exportin, and GTP. Again, there are interactions that take place between exportin and the FG nucleoporins here. And that basically allows active transport of these large proteins through the pore. And then you see that once they, the complex arrives in the cytoplasm, there is a hydrolysis of GTP, which then again induces a conformational change um, in the important molecule, and that leads to the dissociation of this complex. Now, of course, we have to recycle uh, the, the important players here, so exportin and, G and RAN GDP will be recycled back into the nucleoplasm. And here, RAN GDP gets loaded up with GTP again and can undergo another cycle. Do you have any questions on that? Everything clear? Okay, good. So these are very similar processes. And I guess you should really remember that both processes are RAN dependent. 
we have these two different types of um, receptors. One is an important, right? The other one is an exporting. And both of them depend on the energy derived from the hydrolysis of GTP. One part of this chapter that I will not cover today is the export mechanism for mRNAs out of the nucleus. But I want you to know that this particular process is not dependent on RAM. There are different mechanisms for this particular type of export. OK. So let's talk about um, chapter 11. And this chapter deals with the process of how uh, small molecules and larger molecules are transported across membranes. Um, you learned already in the previous lectures that um, these phospholipid bilayers that surround the cell um, are basically compartmentalizing the cell. So of course you have the plasma membrane that shapes the cell itself. And then you have the membranes of the organelles. Again, those membranes are not all the same, but they contain unique sets of proteins and lipids. And some of these proteins, as you will see in this part of the lecture, those are actually transporters that are specific for certain molecules. Reason being that this uh, phospholipid bilayer is impermeable for most small molecules. So they cannot just freely diffuse through the membrane. It's actually called a semi-permeable membrane because it allows certain molecules such as small gases and small uncharged polar molecules to diffuse through the membrane, whereas other molecules that are larger or charged, such as ions, they cannot diffuse through the membrane. They require specific transport mechanisms that can actually facilitate the diffusion of these proteins, right? Now, this process can occur at a very slow rate. Think about kinetics in chemistry. But of course, a cell cannot wait you know, 30 years for a glucose molecule to cross the membrane. So you have specific transporters that facilitate diffusion and increase the rate of diffusion. And usually, these transport mechanisms are very specific to a certain type or subclass of molecules. OK. So just to summarize that, ions in most molecules have to be transported across the membranes through intrinsic membrane proteins. Now, remember, intrinsic membrane proteins are transmembrane proteins. So for this kind of transport, there's a couple of fundamental rules. The first one is that a molecule can always move across a membrane with its concentration gradient, or let's say down its concentration gradient. And this process will not require any additional energy. Okay? It just tries to basically balance out its um, uh, concentration, uh, the, the, the imbalance in concentration on either membrane. So it will always flow along the gradient. Now, if you want to transport a molecule across a membrane against its concentration gradient, you will need some source of energy for that process. That makes sense, right? Now, there can be two major sources of energy that are used for the transport of these molecules across some membranes. One is very obvious, it's the current kind of no, the, the energy uh, source that is universally used in the cell, which is the energy derived from ATP hydrolysis. Now, another energy uh, that we'll talk about in this section is 
the energy that comes or is stored in an electrochemical uh, gradient or electrochemical potential. Okay? As I mentioned, if you look at pretty much any membrane in a cell, you won't have equal concentrations of, for example, sodium ions or potassium ions on either side. So pretty much for any ion and any membrane that you look at, there is a concentration gradient uh, across the membrane. And if that molecule is charged, you also have an electrical gradient at the same time. And so combined, that is an electrochemical potential. All right? Now, many times this imbalance, because you may wonder, why, why is there an imbalance, right? It doesn't really follow the laws of thermodynamics. <laughs> but because an ion would always try to uh, achieve equal concentrations on either side. But many times these electrochemical potentials and imbalances are actually held in place um, by using just the uh, energy coming from ATP hydrolysis. Okay. So just to illustrate this a little better, essentially uh, we're looking here at some cell that is, uh, for example, uh, um, yeah, any body cell, an epithelial cell, for example. And uh, we measure basically uh, internal concentration of different ions and molecules in the cytoplasm. And then we're also looking at, this, at the concentration of the very same molecules in the blood, which essentially represents the extracellular environment. Okay? You can see that there are huge imbalances in the concentration of ions. So for example, potassium is very high inside the cell, but it's low extracellularly. And on the other hand, sodium is very high in the extracellular environment, but low inside the cell. Same for chloride. Um, so these are very important, uh, basically, d these differences in ions constitute uh, the electrochemical potential that is stored uh, across the membrane. Um, and essentially I want to just quickly mention um, the principle of an isotonic solution. Does anyone know already what an isotonic solution is? You may have used some of them. <laughs> some of you may have. If you worked in a, any kind of uh, medical setting. <coughs> any idea? So, yeah. That's right. So if you want to quickly, let's say, rehydrate a patient, right, you would probably give them an intravenous infusion with sodium chloride. Um, and why? Because that will quickly permeate into the blood, and you see that the blood actually has a very high concentration of sodium chloride. Um, so those are isotonic solutions that basically have an equal osmolarity, or osmotic, os osmolarity meaning uh, um, yeah, equal concentration of ions as the serum in the blood. Because otherwise, what would, what would happen if, uh, let's say, the ion concentration was too low, you basically have um, a rupture of your, your blood cells, right, through osmosis. And that's why usually patients get a 0.9% sodium chloride solution. Um, then you have calcium here, which as you can see is, is at a very low concentration in the cell. And that plays an important role for many different signaling pathways because it allows the cell to locally 
change calcium and that will have a big impact okay, and can trigger many different signaling pathways. And it's also important in muscle cells as you all know because calcium influx will lead to contraction of uh, the cytoskeleton inside the cell. Alright, now we'll briefly discuss three major types of uh, transport proteins that uh, enable or facilitate uh, the movement of these uh, molecules across membranes. So the first one are the so-called um, ATP-powered pumps. And basically these pumps are used to use the energy of ATP hydrolysis to move ions or small molecules across the membrane against a concentration gradient and or electrical potential. And that's important. Um, this process, as I mentioned, to basically push an ion, which is shown as the red dot here, against its concentration gradient, which is indicated by this triangle, right? It moves basically from a, uh, the cytosol, where its concentration is low, to the exterior, where the concentration is high, and that requires some energy. So these ATP-powered pumps hydrolyze ATP and basically push the ion across the lipid bilayer. And because energy is used here, this is also called active transport. So active transport defines the process where these pumps burn energy in form of ATP hydrolysis and uh, move these ions against their concentration gradients. All right, then we have the second group of proteins. And for some of you, this may be boring because it's been covered in other lectures. But there's a large group of uh, transport uh, proteins which are called the channel proteins. Okay? And a large subgroup of those are the ion channels. And essentially, they allow to, uh, uh, ions and hydrophilic molecules to move down their concentration gradient or electrical gradient. So essentially what they do, they simply facilitate the diffusion. And they do, so, they do that process very efficiently. Uh, you can see that they have a higher, uh, very high rate of transport, which is 10 to the 7 to 10 to 8 ions per second. That's a huge number. And so their kinetics are much faster than any of the other transport proteins. So keep that in mind. Ion channels are extremely fast. And that's why this process is called facilitated diffusion. As you can see, they can cycle between a closed and an open configuration, and they do that very quickly. Another property that these ion channels have is that they are selective for either a specific ion or a specific subgroup of ions. So for example, some ion channels will only uh, facilitate diffusion of cations. So they are ion selective. <clears throat> All right. Now, we can talk about specific subgroups of these ion channels, which can be gated. Okay? What does that mean? That means that their, what we call, opening probability can be altered. So, how many times are they open during a given time span? Okay? So, this kind of gating can be achieved either by changes in the electrical field across the membrane. In this case, we often talk about voltage-gated ion channels or it can be accomplished by uh, having certain ligands bind these ion channels, in which case these are the ligand-gated ion channels. Just think about the neurotransmitters, right? 
that bind to, um, for example, the acetylcholine receptor. <clears throat> now, there are other ion channels which are pretty much open all the time. An example for those would be the non-gated potassium ion channels in the nerve cell membranes. And essentially, they uh, establish the resting potential in these nerve cells. I'm sure you all heard about that potential. Um, what they do is um, they allow the slow leakage of certain ions, in this case potassium, across the plasma membrane. Um, so what happens is once an action potential occurs, right, you have these imbalances in, in, in the ions, and then we have actually an ATP pump, the so-called uh, sodium-potassium ATPase, um, which will pump um, sodium out of the cell, potassium into the cell, and then these non-gated potassium ion channels allow potassium to slowly leak back until there's a balance reached um, across the membrane. And this balance then usually gives you this resting potential, this balance of ions gives you a resting potential of about minus 70 millivolts. Now, I won't ask you this in the exam. You may learn that more so, I'll cover that in other courses. Okay, so we talked about the ATP power pumps, we talked about ion channels, and now I want to briefly mention another class of transporting proteins, and these are the transporters, not transformers, but transporters. Okay. So these transporters can move molecules across membranes, um, and they can do so either along a concentration gradient, as you will see is the case for the uniporters, or against the concentration gradient. Now, they're different from the ATP-powered pumps in that they use the energy that is stored in the concentration gradient of a different molecule, okay? So you can see that, and we have different types, we have the uniporters, the symporters, and the antiporters, and you will, we'll talk more about them on the next slides. You see that they are usually selective for the molecule that they transport. We have transporters for glucose, sucrose, amino acids, and the process is not quite as fast as what we discussed for the ion channels. So both the uh, ATP-powered pumps and these transporters operate at a lower rate. So the uniporters um, basically do something very simple. They facilitate the diffusion of single molecules down its concentration rate. Okay? Now, so in that sense, they're somewhat similar to the ion channels, but they fall into a different class because they bind uh, larger molecules. And as you saw, they basically um, have a slower rate, and that is because they undergo a huge conformational change when they transport these molecules across the membrane. Second class of the transporters are the symporters. Um, so the symporters can co-transport a specific molecule against its concentration gradient, along with another molecule down its electrochemical gradient. It sounds really complicated, but if you look at this picture, it becomes pretty clear. So what's the situation here? You have to imagine a phospholipid bilayer here, and then this uh, transmembrane protein, right, which is a transporter. Um, we start out with two different molecules here on the same side, 
you can see how the red molecule is transported down its concentration gradient. Okay, so that is a process um, that would basically naturally occur at a certain rate. And there's energy stored in this uh, gradient here. Now, this transporter uses the energy that's stored in the gradient for this molecule in red to transport the black molecule against its concentration gradient. Okay? Now, why are they called symporters? Because they basically co-transport both molecules from one side of the membrane to the other side. Do you have any questions on that? Okay. So the antiporters pretty much use the same method. But here we start out with the following situation that we have, again, one ion which flows down its concentration gradient and then another ion which has to be transported against its concentration gradient. But you see how these ions are transported on different sides of the membrane. Okay, so in this way, these antiporters can co-transport a specific molecule, in this case the black molecule, against its concentration gradient, along with another protein down its electrochemical gradient from the other side of the membrane. That's why they're called antiporters. Okay. Okay, now I want to give you a few examples for these different transporter proteins. Um, as you all know, glucose is a major source of energy in the cell and it basically moves through uh, the bloodstream and is then taken up by cells through such uniporter uh, transporter molecules or proteins. Now, the transport of glucose is highly specific, so these uniporters recognize glucose molecules with a high affinity. Um, and the rate of diffusion through these uniporters is much higher than if glucose had to uh, basically diffuse by itself across the lipid bilayer. So again, these proteins can help to facilitate diffusion of glucose. We find about, uh, there are at least, because there may still some out there that haven't been annotated in the genome yet, but there are at least 12 different uh, such uh, clute transporter or uniporter uh, uh, families out there or proteins out there in the genome. And they are highly homologous to each other, and they all have this 12 transmembrane alpha helical uh, fold. Okay? And I just want to point out that there, why do we need so many different glute transporters? Do you have any idea? Why would we need that? Why isn't that just one type? Kind of a simple question, but not that simple. Yes? That's right. So in some cases, you may need a lot of glucose in the cell. For example, nerve cells burn a lot of glucose, right? If you get tired during the lectures because you, know, you may have used up all your energy for processing the information up here. And so you need a glucose transporter in the, the membranes of nerve cells that have a really high affinity uh, for glucose and um, can transport glucose rapidly into the cell. And then if you think about the liver cell, now, when do you want to accumulate glucose in the liver? Yes? You have excess of it, so you form glycogen store it. Absolutely. So if you have plenty of glucose running through your blood, like if you eat a, a candy bar, you will store 
glucose in the form of glycogen in your liver cells. So in this case, you need a transporter in your liver cells, or the membrane of your liver cells, I should say, that has a lower affinity for glucose, because you only want it to be taken up if there's a very high concentration of glucose in the blood. So that's why we have all these 12 different glute uniporters. All right, um, these glucose transporters change their conformation once they bind to their substrate. And uh, this is shown here on this slide. So that's basically the mechanism how one particular glute transporters uh, will uptake glucose, uh, but it basically applies to all the different glute transporters. Um, again, we have this concentration gradient of glucose, which may be high outside, so in the blood, and then low inside the cell, in the cytosol. Uh, so glucose is basically bound to uh, the glute transporter, which has this outward-facing conformation. And you see how glucose binds here. And that induces a conformation change, so that now the transporter will open up the ligand binding site towards the cytosol, and the molecule will be released. And then it's the um, transporter cycles back into an outward-facing conformation. So that's pretty straightforward. What's really important about this process is it is just facilitated diffusion. So if this um, concentration gradient here was to change or was to revert, the whole process could work exactly the opposite way. So in this case, the uniporter may facilitate um, the transport of glucose from the cytosol out into the exterior. Okay? Now, usually cells want to keep accumulating glucose as an energy source inside the cell. However, you can imagine that if this process was to occur for a long time, you would accumulate glucose inside the cell, and eventually this concentration gradient would disappear. So what the cell does is very clever. It quickly phosphorylates glucose to glucose 6-phosphate, so it kind of masks glucose, and therefore it keeps basically the intracellular glucose concentration low. And in this way, it can maintain this concentration gradient across the membrane. And again, we're talking about glycolysis here, because this step, right, glucose to glucose 6-phosphate, if I remember correctly, is catalyzed during glycolysis by what enzyme? Hexokinase? Yeah, good. <laughs> um, here's another example of such a uniporter. Um, it doesn't shuffle glucose across the membrane, but it basically controls the flow of water Right? You actually have to transport water, because water is slightly polar. Um, and also of um, small uncharged molecules, such as glycerol. Now, you see here a three-dimensional structure of such a so-called aquaporin uniporter. And here you see a space-filling model in one of its subunits. You see it has four subunits here. So, um, but the space-filling model, you can basically make out the pore through which these molecules will diffuse. Again, we're talking about facilitated diffusion here. And it has this seven alpha helical fold, and there are two shorter uh, alpha helical segments here. And you see that, um, if you look at the ribbon cartoon here of the molecule, that it has a part in, in the molecule, in the pore, that is lined with uh, asparagine uh, residues. And that actually allows the very quick diffusion 
of uh, water molecules and other molecules through the pore. So aquaporin is a uniporter for water and small uncharged molecules such as glycerol. Again, it just facilitates diffusion. All right, now we're going to talk about the symporters briefly. And uh, I just want to illustrate the, molecule, uh, the, the principle of the symporters, um, which utilize concentration gradients of one molecule to transport another molecule against the concentration gradient, as we already talked about. So for example, the sodium-linked symporters can move amino acids and glucose into cells against high concentration gradients. And that's again shown here, and it's better illustrated on the next slide how exactly these symporters work. So you have uh, two concentration gradients here. Uh, again, your goal is to shuffle glucose, or in this case, is to shuffle glucose inside the cell. Okay? And we use a high concentration gradient of sodium, which, as you saw on the table in one of the previous slides, is usually high outside the cell, um, the concentration of sodium. And we couple that to this energetically unfavorable process of transporting glucose into the cell, where the concentration is already high. So what happens here is you have this uh, symporter. It has, to, it, uh, in this situation, it has the outward facing conformation. It then binds two sodium molecules and one glucose, and then it, it transitions into this occluded conformation, where basically the ligand binding site is completely shielded. Um, or the molecules are shielded within this pocket, and then it, it uh, switches to an inward facing conformation and basically releases the molecules, and then can undergo another uh, transport cycle. All right. All right. Now I want to come back briefly and talk about these ATP-driven uh, pumps because they're very important in pretty much all cell types in the body. Now these ATP-driven pumps um, drive transport, as the word implies, at the expenditure of ATP. And this process is called active transport, okay? When you burn ATP to transport these uh, molecules. And there are four different types. And they are really responsible for generating pretty much any electrochemical potential that exists across the cell or membrane. Okay, the first class are the so-called P-pumps. Um, they're called P-pumps because they get phosphorylated uh, during the transport cycle. So that's one important aspect of these P-class pumps. You can see that they um, exist in many different membranes. I'm not going to go into the detail of it. I'm not going to ask you, in, you know, which cell membrane they're located. Um, but I may ask you in exam what would be the most likely function or what particular transporter could accomplish a particular function. Um, and then you see that they are very highly uh, expressed in the plasma membranes of higher eukaryotes. And there, <clears throat> the particular type that is expressed there is the sodium potassium pump, which, as I mentioned earlier, pretty much generates the resting potential in uh, the neurons. So these P-class pump have a general structure that is outlined here. Uh, essentially, to make it simple, they consist of a, an alpha subunit, which has an ATP binding site here. And it also has uh, a site that can get phosphorylated. 
And then you see it has this ligand binding pocket with uh, three binding sites for ions here and two binding sites for a different ion here. Okay? And that the whole mechanism will become uh, clearer on this slide, actually on the, the next slide after this. So we're going to talk about, I'm okay, going to give you one example of such a, a P-class pump, and that again is the sodium potassium ATPase. So by burning ATP, uh, it can basically pump out three sodium ions and pump into the cell uh, two potassium ions in each phosphorylation cycle. And you will see in a second what I mean by phosphorylation cycle. Again, this is called active transport. And this mechanism is what establishes the high sodium concentrations outside the cell and uh, the high potassium concentrations inside the cell. All right. Um, by the way, if you want to get a better idea of how the process works that we're going to talk about on the next slide, there's a very nice animation that you can look up under this uh, web link. So this is the situation. We have high sodium on the outside and high potassium on the inside. Now remember, this is very different than what we discussed for the ion channels or for the um, um, the, the, the transporters, because here we now use ATP hydrolysis to pump two ions and we pump them both against the concentration gradient. So what happens here? Um, it looks very complicated, so let's go through it step by step. So I want to point out that this molecule, the alpha subunit here, can adopt two different types of conformation. In one conformation called E1, you see that this binding pocket here for ligands faces the cytosol. Okay? And here we have another conformation all the way on the right where this ligand pocket is open to the exterior. Okay? And so the molecule cycles between these two different conformations. It's a really smart mechanism that the cell has come up with here. So in this E1 conformation, we have three high affinity binding sites for sodium. Okay. So what does that mean? It means that they would like to buy to buy to bind sodium. Okay. And we have two low affinity binding sites for uh, potassium. So in the first step, sodium will bind to these high affinity sites and the molecule also gets uh, uh, binds ATP. In the second step, we have phosphorylation of an aspartate residue, which is also part of this alpha subunit. And that then, together with ATP hydrolysis, leads to a conformational change. Now, the molecule flips from the E1 configuration or conformation to uh, the E2 conformation. Okay? Now, you see that what happens is not only that this binding pocket opens up to the exterior, but also this conformational change actually changes the affinities of these different binding sites for the ions. Yes? Both both need to occur, yes. Um, yes it is. <laughs> okay. So the in this conformation Again, the alpha subunit 
but with its ligand binding site now faces outwards. And these three binding sites for uh, sodium change. They change from having a high affinity for sodium to having a low affinity. Okay? And therefore, um, actually sodium can be released to the outside and what happens is that the two binding sites for um, potassium change from a low affinity here to a high affinity here and therefore two potassium ions will now bind to these sites as you can see here. Okay, so we release three sodium ions, we bind two potassium ions that come from the outside. Now after a while the alpha subunit will be dephosphorylated and undergoes a conformational change. So it flips it back from E2 to the E1 configuration. Okay, and it becomes, uh, as shown here, dephosphorylated. And as a result, the potassium binding sites, which had a high affinity for potassium, now go back to having a low affinity. Okay, so a rather complex but very intricate mechanism of how this ATP-powered pump can shuffle sodium and potassium both against the concentration gradients. Do you have any questions on this? It's probably the most complicated slide for this lecture. <coughs> yes? Um, it looks like there's like an opening of the channel, so it's not only the confirmation of the actual binding site, but it's also like the opening of the channel that what happens with the conformational change? Yes, that's right. Oh. Mm -hmm. Because it needs to become accessible to uh, the extracellular environment and therefore, you know, it can bind potassium and release uh, sodium. Okay, um, we have two more, actually three more classes of ATPases, um, but I will not go into much detail with those. Um, essentially, there are the V and F class ATPases, um, which the first one is shown here, the V class proton pump. And the V and F class ATPases, they exclusively transport protons. Okay, so not ions, just protons. Um, and basically, they're present in vacuolar membranes of plants, yeast, fungi, and you will also find them. And I kind of touched on that uh, in the membranes of the endosomes and the lysosomes. So what they do there is they pump protons into the lumen of the lysosomes, which helps to acidify the loop of the lysosomes. And you also find them in other cells. Essentially, you see they have two big subunits, a V0 and a V1 subunit. The V1 subunit here contains the ATP binding site and ATP, um, ATPase activity, so it can catalyze hydrolysis of ATP and use this energy to pump uh, proton ions through the V0 subunit, which looks like this stalk here, but the V0 basically forms a channel through the core, and again, these uh, V-class uh, uh, ATP-powered pumps can pump uh, protons under the expenditure of ATP from one side of the membrane to the other side. Now, in contrast, the F-class pumps, they normally operate in the reverse direction to generate ATP rather than pump protons. And so I'm sure you're familiar with uh, these type of ATP pumps because they play a major role uh, during um, oxidative phosphorylation. So in this case, and you find them in some bacteria, 
Uh, and of course, you find them in the inner mitochondrial membrane and in the thylakoid membrane of the chloroplast. So here, the whole thing works in reverse. Um, essentially, we use an existing protein, pro proton gradient uh, across the lipid bilayer. And these protons will flow now through this subunit called F0. That's because they're called F-pumps. And that will then drive the F1 subunit to synthesize ATP. So it's the whole process in reverse, essentially. So of course, this process plays an important role, as I said, uh, during uh, oxidative phosphorylation in the mitochondria and photosynthesis in a chloroplast. And then finally, uh, there's another class of ATP part transporters, which are called the ABC transporters. And ABC stands for ATP binding cassette. Now, they're found in both a bacterial and also uh, mammalian plasma membranes. And um, as you see in this cartoon here, that consists of basically uh, these two subunits, a transmembrane domain subunit, and then an ATPase domain protein. And it's a very simplified cartoon here. But essentially, just want to mention that in uh, bacteria, they can hydrolyze ATP and then transport, for example, amino acids, sugars, and peptides from the exterior inside the cell. So this is a very important process for bacteria to basically shuffle nutrients across the membrane. And they can uh, basically use this active transport when the nutrients are at a very low con concentration in the exterior. And in mammalian cells, these ABC transporters are, for example, expressed in the liver or other cells where you need to detox. Um, essentially, there they help to shuffle um, molecules that are toxic out of the cell. So they can transport certain phospholipids or small lipophilic drugs or molecules such as cholesterol um, that you don't want in the cell necessarily. Okay, now just to sum this up, I want to highlight that most of these transporter systems can be found in different types of cells. And these cells may actually employ multiple transport systems at the same time to move metabolites across the system. So they play together to achieve one goal here. So I want to come back to talk briefly about epithelial cells, because you can see very nicely how these different uh, types of transporter molecules work together. Um, again, here's an epithelial sheet. You see that we have these polar epithelial cells. As I mentioned, you have the microvilli up here, which face the gut lumen. We have the extracellular fluid down here. Remember, here would be somewhere the basal lamina that they attach to. Uh, we have these tight junctions between the epithelial cells, which seal off the intercellular gap. And again, remember, that actually prevents the diffusion of uh, molecules simply from the gut into the extracellular fluid, which is, of course, something you want to avoid. But you want to have selective transport of molecules through the so-called transcellular pathway. So everything has to go through the epithelial cell layer. Okay, so we talked a lot about glucose. Now, if you look at, look at the glucose concentration in the gut, it is relatively low compared to the uh, concentration in the cytosol of the cell. And then again, glucose is also low in uh, the extracellular fluid, which uh, is essentially 
right here you would have blood vessels that run through this area. So you could say glucose is low in the blood, it's low in the gut, and it's relatively high within the cells. Now, how do we take up glucose from the gut? Well, we employ a sodium-driven glucose symporter because sodium is usually highly concentrated in the gut. So we can make use of this existing concentration gradient for sodium. So we couple this transport here of sodium across the membrane with the energetically unfavorable transport of glucose against its concentration gradient into the cell. Now, if we keep this process running for a while, there will be a problem. Anyone knows what the problem would be? Would this process go on forever? The sodium. Sodium. Yeah, you keep pumping sodium into the cell, so eventually sodium will become enriched in the cytosol. And then this whole process would stop because. Because um, the reason the process would stop is because of the, uh, the gradient. Exactly. Phrase properly. Exactly. Because the symporter just uses facilitated diffusion, or it facilitates diffusion. Um, and that is based on having this existing gradient, concentration gradient of sodium across the membrane. Once that gradient is gone, once you accumulate sodium in here, the whole thing may start running in reverse. You don't want that. Doesn't the sodium potassium not keep the gradient stable? So that's, that's what happens. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was my next point. So essentially, the cell then uses a sodium potassium pump here at the basal side of the epithelial cell. And as you remember, the sodium potassium pump is an ATP powered pump that belongs to the P class. Um, and it basically undergoes, uh, mediates active transport. It burns ATP and it pumps sodium out of the cell and basically shuffles potassium inside the cell. Okay? Now, I just want to point out that this really this process requires ATP because potassium, as you saw on the, in the table that I showed you earlier, is usually highly concentrated inside the cell. So again, there may be other mechanisms now in place that help to maintain the potassium concentration balanced uh, between the cytosol and the outside as well. Okay, but essentially you shuffle sodium all the way through the cell here, and if you look at glucose. Now you want to glu transport glucose into the blood, so what the cell does, it uses the, the natural gradient that exists from the cytosol here uh, across the membrane to the extracellular flu fluid in glucose and simply builds in a glute transporter which facilitates the diffusion of glucose along its concentration gradient into the blood. Okay, so that's essentially it. And if you have, if you have any questions on that? Okay, now if you still have time, <laughs> I'm going to give you a couple of examples for questions as they may come up during the exam. <laughs> okay, and here's where there should be an everywhere poll, but since there's major trouble with the, the wireless here and the uh, couldn't connect to the internet through the port as well. I'm just putting up a question here. And you don't need to text or anything, but we can just briefly discuss the question. So one question could be, 
you're looking at fish that live in cold water. How would these fish actually be able to maintain their membrane fluidity? Which type of molecules would they incorporate into their membranes? Okay. So, any suggestions? Yeah. I, uh, Cholesterol yeah, kind of stiffens the membranes, right? You find cholesterol in these lipid rafts. Those are more rigid areas of the membrane. Phosphoglycerides contain short fatty acids. Yes, so you build in more um, short fatty acids in this case. Why shorter fatty acids? Okay. There's less intervals um, forces, so the membrane becomes more fluid. That's right. So the shorter the chain, the less Van der Waals interactions with neighboring fatty acid chains. Okay, so that will increase the fluidity of the membrane. Again, this may be a hypothetical process, but it's really a question that makes you think about how can you make a membrane more fluid, basically. All right. Um, and no worries, it will not come exactly as it is you know, illustrated here, but there would be similar questions. Um, hemidesmosomes. What do you know about hemidesmosomes? Do they associate with intermediate filaments? Do they contain integrins? Um, can they attach to basal lamina? Do they form cell matrix adhesive contacts? Or do they do all of the above? All of the above. Okay, all of the above is correct here, yeah. Um, all right, this one is a little tricky, but also not that complicated if you looked, if you learned this particular slide. So here we talk about laminin and its association with uh, different receptors and its self-association. So if you were to have a mutation, let's say a genetic mutation, that leads to a deletion of the laminin globular domain, what may be the consequence of such a mutation? Okay, maybe wait a little bit. Anybody? The, uh, the laminin self-assembly? Laminin self-assembly, yes. So you may remember it's really the global domains that play an important role in the self-assembly of laminin into a meshwork, right? And where does this process come into play? Where does laminin form these networks? In the basal lamina, for example, yes. Okay. And then we have other sites on the laminin molecule that mediate binding to integrins, for example. Right. Yes? An alternative to uh, uh, my only thought is an alternative is uh, what, what sort of deletion mutation would affect the uh, other systems, collagen fibril assembly, collagen binding, integrin binding. Um, I'm not exactly sure. So. And that's why I didn't ask the question this way. Because <laughs> it can become, you know, Depending on how you ask the question, the answer can be sort of ambiguous, and I'm trying to avoid that. Um, but yeah, I'm you know, not going to give all the answers, but of course this one um, would be uh, the, the tail end, essentially, of the laminin that would affect integrin binding. I didn't go into detail about during the lecture about where exactly collagen would bind. Okay, now all of the following molecules can form heterophilic interactions except 
ask somebody else. Uh, it's always the same people that <laughs> raise their hands. Anybody? Okay. Classical coherence. Classical coherence. Um, yes. <laughs> exactly. So, if you remember the intergreens, um, basically only form heterophilic interactions. And so do. And so do the selectins. And then you remember, this one is a little tricky, this glycoprotein complex. What does this complex bind to? Dystrophin is, you could say, an associated molecule, but that's correct. So that's also a heterophilic interaction because it's a different molecule. Um, but on the outside, if you think about the you know, cell, cell matrix interactions, it would bind to laminate. For example, yeah, or other extracellular matrix proteins. So all these interactions are heterophilic. And yeah, the selectins, if you remember, or for those of you who don't remember, they bind to uh, basically um, the glycosylated uh, proteins on the opposite cell. And the classic coherence, they form these typical uh, adherence junctions undergoing homophilic interactions. So that's really one of the hallmarks of the cartierians. All right, last but not least, and this may be a tricky one, challenging question. So the inner leaflet of the lysosome bilayer is equivalent to the exoplasmic phase of the plasma membrane, the membrane leaflet facing the ER lumen, Two membrane leaflets facing the intermembrane space in the mitochondria, or the membrane leaflets facing the intermembrane space of the nuclear envelope. So this is this is where you have to remember the picture, the slide, and you just have to play through in your head what leaflet is where. And if you think about the process of endocytosis specifically, you will come up with the question. Remember, we talked about the endosymbiont hypothesis for um, those organelles that have the double membranes. And if you think that process through, and you may even want to draw it, you will find out the answer. Yeah? It's all of the above. All of the above is correct, yes. So that is a tricky question, actually. <laughs> okay. And who wants to explain each individual position and why it's correct? <laughs> Any volunteers? It's kind of hard to visualize it unless you really um, kind of write it on paper. But essentially, just think about the, the plasma membrane oh, first, okay? So we have one leaflet of the membrane that faces the outside, the other one facing inside, right? The phospholipid, uh, the phospholipids form a bilayer, so you have two leaflets, okay? The lysis, the lysosomic phase, which is the inside of the cell, the exoplasmic phase, which is the outside. Then the lysosomic buds imaginates in order to form the lysosomic phase. The exoplasmic phase basically inside of the lysosomic. The cytosomic phase basically. That's, that's uh, right. And then going forward, it's so really complicated. 
It is. But if you have questions on that, look at that particular slide. Um, I'm not saying this question is going to come during the exam, but you know, it's just another example for maybe a more trickier question as it would come up. This one? If you have any questions before the exam, feel free to send me emails, just not at 3 a.m. on Monday morning. Thank you.